Good afternoon, everybody, and welcome to the Cato Institute. My name is Michael Cannon. I'm the Director of Health Policy Studies here at Cato, and I want to welcome you to a book forum on Overcoming Obamacare by Philip Klein. Now, there's a lot that uh, has been said in the media recently about free market alternatives to the Patient Protection and Affordable Care Act, or Obamacare. One of the main reasons for that is there is a case before the Supreme Court that could practically necessitate Congress reopening the law, Congress reopening that statute for major revision, possibly repeal. And so there's a lot of interest in what would conservatives, libertarians, free market advocates do uh, in, in, in what would they put in place of Obamacare? How would they replace it? Do, or or should, it be, uh, should it just be reformed? That's the subject of, uh, the, uh, of this book by Philip Klein. He looks at three different schools of thought in the free market movement about, about what to do with Obamacare. Now, when we usually do book forums at the Cato Institute, what we do is we have the, uh, the author of the book present, uh, uh, present his or her book, and we have a moderator and other speakers to provide comment. What is unique about Phil's book is that it is a, what he does in the book is he moderates these three different schools of thought in the free market movement, so we decided that we would let the author of the book be the moderator of this book forum, and he will be guiding you through the, uh, those three schools of thought with uh, representatives from each of those three schools of thought. Uh, and just to introduce Philip Klein, he is the commentary editor of the Washington Examiner, where he writes about domestic policy, politics and policy, and runs the opinion section, and he's one of the leading voices in health policy on the right. So, Phil, would you like to introduce our other speakers? Or would you, yes, would you yes, do we that? could do that. Okay. Um, Philip Klein. Um, well, thank you for joining uh, us here today. Um, and I don't want to spend too much time talking because I want to get to this, what I think is going to be a very valuable discussion. Uh, but just to give you a bit of background, uh, the reason why I decided to write this book is that I believe that re simply repealing Obamacare is not enough because even before Obamacare was in place, we didn't have a free market system. We had a system which government was a huge player and where individuals didn't have much control over the spending of their healthcare dollars. And historically, uh, people on the right haven't been good enough about actually uh, presenting and enacting positive free market reforms in the healthcare arena. Um, if you look at what happened during the 1990s, um, People on the right of center world got very jazzed up when Hillary Clinton and Bill Clinton tried to impose a government-run health care system. Um, but once that was defeated, they kind of went into retreat, and they didn't do much to advance free market health care alternatives. And during that time, uh, Democrats used that as an opening to advance, uh, to figure out and learn from their lessons and figure out a way that they could do it differently and better the next time. And that eventually turned into Obamacare. And now we're in a similar position where there's a lot of criticism of Obamacare, but if Republicans don't present an alternative, Democrats will just bide their time and wait until they have a next opening to expand even further the government role into healthcare. 
Um, one of the biggest barriers I saw as I looked at this um, to developing an alternative is that there are real disagreements in the right of center policy community about how, what the best approach is. And so I thought a lot of times this debate gets lost in the myriad of details of all these various plans that always get churned out. So I thought it would be better to look at things more systematically um, and tell people here are the sort of main schools of thought of thinking on how to repeal Obamacare. And briefly, um, I see the three that I see are one, uh, what I call the reform school. These are people who think that you know, it, it, at this point, it might be unrealistic to think we could totally repeal Obamacare, that there might be ways to work within some of the confines of the law to reform it and to institute broader free market reforms. There are other people that I call the replace school that says, no, we have to repeal Obamacare, but we have to find a replacement that's credible uh, that finds some ways to sort of grapple with some of the changes and some of the coverage expansions uh, that took place under Obamacare. And then there's a third school, which I call the restart school, which basically says, no, we have to completely wipe out Obamacare and move in a free market direction without getting into this debate over how many people we cover versus them, because doing so is merely playing on the battlefield of Democrats. And instead, we should focus on reducing costs. So with that brief overview, um, we're lucky to have uh, three very good representatives of the various schools of thought that I've identified. Over here we have Ovik Roy of the Manhattan Institute, who put out an influential plan uh, for Obamacare, which he's going to talk about. Um, here we have Jeff Anderson of the 2017 Project, who also uh, has a plan, and more importantly, uh, is the father of a, a new daughter. So congratulations. Thank you, Phil. My wife deserves the applause. <laughs> it was for her. And over here we have Michael Cannon of the Cato Institute. <laughs> so um, I'm going to give everyone a chance to give a, a brief introduction, opening remarks, and then we'll get to, to some of my questions. Ovik, if you want to start. All right. So I am actually not going to talk about my plan in the, in the seven minutes I have here. But uh, I'm going to talk about instead how to think about free market health reform. And if I can figure out how to, how do I uh, get this going? Oh, is it there? Okay, great. So my basic argument and the whole way in which I've tried to think about health reform is, is the point that Phil just made, which is that we focus a lot on what to do about Obamacare. But Obamacare is not the only thing we have to overcome. There's actually an enormous amount of government intervention that was building up and accumulating before Obamacare, really since the World War II era, that culminates in Obamacare. But it did not begin with Obamacare, and it may not end with Obamacare. So the way I try to think about this problem is very simple. The way we have to think about how to reform the healthcare system is first to understand how much was the government intervening in the healthcare system before Obamacare, because we can't just ignore that. Then we obviously have to confront how much did uh, Obamacare expand government intervention in the healthcare system? And then finally, of course, we have to think about what's the most effective way to reduce government intervention in the healthcare system, whether it originated with Obamacare or not. The whole thing is important. If we only look at Obamacare, then the left has already won. 
because we've left aside all the other things the government has done to the healthcare system. Here's a simple chart that kind of explains this. A lot of people have said, a lot of Republican politicians say, well, Obamacare is the government takeover of the healthcare system. Well, if Obamacare was the government takeover of the healthcare system, then what's all that red stuff? So if in this chart, the blue is what Obamacare does to increase federal spending on health care, health insurance. The red is what the federal government was already doing. That's Medicare, Medicaid, the VA, all the other government programs. So if we repeal Obamacare, whatever you replace it with, that's great. That might be an improvement on the status quo. But you've done nothing about those gigantic red bars that are driving our deficit and our debt and all the problems we're having in this country. So it's essential to tackle the entire problem and not merely the Obamacare fraction of the problem. So what was the uh, government invention in the healthcare system before Obamacare? There are four big categories, I would argue, and we can quibble about how to structure this, but I only had room for four categories on the slide, so I'm going to go with four. And, and the first one is tax code malinvestment. So there's been this massive distortion in the tax code whereby if you get employer-sponsored health insurance, that's not counted as taxable income. And that encouraged employers to massively spend a lot of money in, your, in terms of your compensation on health insurance instead of giving that money to you in wages for you to spend on whatever you thought was best for you. That amounts, that, the value of that expenditure is now $532 billion a year in the excluded taxes uh, that accumulate there. So it's, it's a fairly large uh, entitlement if you think about tax expenditures as entitlements, which not everyone does. But it is a massive distortion of the tax code. Then there's spending. Before Obamacare, we were spending $1.1 trillion a year in federal spending, government spending, excuse me, uh, on health care. That's a lot of money, right? There's regulation. So before Obamacare, through the Medicare program in particular, also through Medicaid, there was massive federal intervention in the regulation of the way hospitals and doctors had to practice their crafts. And there's also state-based regulation of the way insurance companies uh, must run their business and how new entrants among hospitals and doctors can compete with incumbents. And then, almost the most important, is the crowd out of private enterprise. We talk about Obamacare as a Trojan horse for single-payer health care in America, but actually, before Obamacare, there were 90 million Americans on some form of single-payer health care. Medicare is single-payer health care. That's why your Democrats say Medicare for all is a great plan. Medicaid is single-payer health care. The VA is single-payer health care. There are some asterisks. There are some exceptions. But broadly speaking, there are a lot of people on single-payer health care already in America. So what does Obamacare do? Obamacare does apply this Cadillac tax to the employer tax exclusion, so it does mitigate a little bit of that malinvestment, though it does so in a way that has carve-outs for special interests like labor unions. It increases net spending, uh, federal spending on health care, or government spending on health care, by about $1.3 trillion over the next 10 years. It adds massive amounts of regulation. Actually, the biggest level of uh, stage of government intervention in the health care system through Obamacare is regulation. The individual mandate, forcing you to buy health insurance. The employer mandate, forcing employers to cover people. Uh, all the insurance regulations, an entirely new a layer of federal regulation of insurance, plus more regulations through the Medicare program. Then, in terms of crowd out of private enterprise, it goes up. So Title II of, Medi uh, of Obamacare is the expansion of Medicaid, which is an expansion of single-payer health insurance in America. You also have 15 million people who are going to be retiring and entering Medicare, Medicare because they're baby boomers who are retiring. So by 2023, there are going to be 30 million more people on single-payer health coverage. So what do we want to do about this? How do we think about how to roll back federal intervention or government intervention in the healthcare system? First, you have to evaluate all of our work based on how aggressively or how successfully we roll back those four pillars of government intervention. 
malinvestment through the tax code, spending, regulation, and the crowd out of the private sector. Then you have to ask the question, is this plan just a theoretically great plan? Or could this actually be the winning plan for a candidate in the 2016 general election? Because if the candidate running on your plan loses, it really doesn't matter what your plan is, right? Because it's never going to become law. And the third thing is even if that guy becomes president, he actually has to get 60 votes in the Senate to, to, to pass that plan and actually make it law. So it's not just, it's, it's important to know how well the plan rolls back government intervention. It's also important to know how politically viable that plan is, how much public support it would have, and whether it can get 60 votes in the Senate. As we all know, the likelihood of having 60 Republican senators in 2016 or 2017 is almost zero because there are 54 today and there are a lot of uh, Republicans who are up for re-election in 2014. So that's how I think about it. If you want to learn more about what I'm doing, you can Google Transcending Obamacare. We have a new veterans reform plan that's coming out on Thursday. I encourage you to take a look at that as well. Thank you. If you want to go. Yeah, thank you, Phil. Um, well, I want to start off by just saying that um, healthcare is not a right. Healthcare is, is a good. If you imagine a state of nature, there's no such thing as uh, you, you can't go to somebody and say, you have some knowledge of herbs or exercise or something, and, and, and you need to come and take care of me, even though I'm not going to pay you because it's my right. It's, a very, it's not a notion that squares at all with founding principles of, of rights. But President Obama, of course, has, has ridden this notion of health care as a right to, it's, it's the sort of fuel behind his centerpiece legislation, which is, is at the core of his project to fundamentally transform the United States of America, as he put it, I think, five days before he uh, first was elected. I think the question that all of us have to face here today and in the broader debate is, are we going to let him get away with it? And I think that the in other words, another way to put that question, I think this may seem like an, an obvious question, but I really think it's, a, it's at the core of all of these discussions is, is the simple question of how important is it to repeal Obamacare? How important we consider it to be? Which brings me to Phil's fine book. It's very readable, and I think it does a nice job of laying out the different positions uh, about as clearly as one could expect that to be done. Um, if you look at the three schools of thought, the, the reform school's position on that question, how important is it to repeal Obamacare, is, is clear in the, in the definition of, of that school. It's, it's not important. It's, the effort there is to work to, to fix Obamacare, to change it, but not to repeal it, or certainly not necessarily to repeal it. The other two schools of thought, uh, what Phil calls the, uh, the replace school and the, um, and the restart school, I would argue are, are essentially one and the same. Uh, I would quibble just a little bit with uh, the categorizations there uh, in this sense that um, Phil writes in the book that the, the restart school is, is a school that says, this is what we would have done back in 2009, and we're not doing anything different now. Well, that's how I would describe the 2017 project alternative to Obamacare as well. This is what we would have put out in 2009, just as, as now. Uh, the only distinction being in 2009, it would have been in anticipation of how to stave off Obamacare, and now it's how to repeal it. Um, so I think that the fundamental divide is between this, uh, the, the school that wants, that is not concerned with repeal and, and the two that, that are. And I think the thing for the, for the schools that are concerned with repeal to really wrestle with is, is the question of how much do we want to prioritize victory and how much do we want to prioritize theoretical purity? And certainly neither one of them is good in isolation. Uh, but, but some sort of consideration there I think is important. Um, 
just briefly, the 2017 projects um, we call our winning alternative to Obamacare. I believe there are handouts there that, that all of you have. Um, it, uh, it, it would seek to fix what the government, what the federal government had broken in, in our health care system long before Obamacare was passed, um, and to do so in the way that would, would provide the minimal amount of disruption to both employer-based plans and individual market plans on the assumption that that's the way to get to full repeal of Obamacare. Um, the, uh, we think the key thing the federal government had broken before the passage of Obamacare, which, of course, made everything so much worse, um, is this inequality in the tax code that Ovik ref- referred to, where people get nice tax breaks for getting employer-based plans, and then their next-door neighbor who has to buy insurance on their own gets no tax break. The result has been the individual market is essentially dried up. You've got a healthcare system where people don't shop for value. Prices are almost impossible to find. Everything's like you walk onto a lavish cruise ship and, you know, prices just aren't talked about. Um, and I think that it's essential to fix what the government broke in that way and revitalize the individual market. The easiest way politically, the way that we at the 2017 Project think can lead to full repeal, to fix this inequality in the tax code is, is to just deal with the part that's really broken, the individual market, give, uh, give, we, would, we propose to give flat tax credits to everybody who buys insurance in the individual market, um, very simple, just three age bands. If you are under 35 years old, you get a $1,200 tax credit to buy whatever insurance you want. Uh, if you're between 35 and 49, you get a $2,100 tax credit. If you're 50 or over, you get 3000 And if you have a child, for each child, you get $900. Again, this would be to buy whatever insurance you want. Uh, we'd repeal every last word of Obamacare so there'd be no Obamacare exchanges or, or mandates or requirements. Um, the, uh, the tax credits would go to everybody from Bill Gates down to the unemployed. Um, and, they would, uh, and if you didn't use the full value of the tax credit, you could put the savings, if you buy insurance that costs less than the value of the credit, you could put the savings in a health savings account to encourage people to shop for value. And we would also try to jumpstart the usage of self-health savings accounts by having a one-time $1,000 per person tax credit for anybody who has an HSA or opens one anew, um, which would also provide some seed money for out-of-pocket costs in response to the inevitable criticism from the left that how are these people going to pay for out-of-pocket costs. Um, we, uh, the, the surest way, I think, to, to, to not repeal Obamacare is to either put forward no alternative to it or, or perhaps even worse, to put forward an alternative that would, would disrupt the, the tax status of, of 160 million Americans' employer-provided insurance. Now, certainly it's a, it's a worthy uh, reform effort to try to decouple employer-based insurance from, you know, insurance from employment. Um, but, and, and some of that would be done by just revitalizing the individual market. But for further, more aggressive efforts in that regard, I think it would be wise to wait until after we have repealed Obamacare and we, and we can uh, get our health care system moving in a direction where people are, are in control of their own health care dollars and, uh, and, and we're not, I mean, ultimately Obamacare's really about control, right? I mean, this is, this is an effort to consolidate and centralize power and, and money in Washington, D.C. that's perhaps unprecedented in, in our nation's entire history. Um, one last... Okay. Got a minute. If you okay. One, so one last thought is just, I think we actually can learn something from our 44th and 44th best uh, presidential administration in, in this regard. Um, that... Uh, Two things. I mean, one way, I think the key to Obama's success once he got into office has been, and the reason he's been able to do so much damage, 
is sheer willpower. I mean, our side doesn't seem to have anywhere near the willpower that Obama has. And we, we look at 150 or more consecutive polls, according to Real Clear Politics, to say Obamacare is unpopular. And we say, gosh, I'm not sure we can repeal it. And we look at elections in 2010 and 2014 that were clearly driven by Obamacare, and that left Obama as the first president since Woodrow Wilson to lose the House in one election and the Senate in another. And we still say, not sure we can repeal Obamacare. Obama looks at polling in 2010 that says, nobody wants this thing, or late 2009 as well, but let's push forward. And then he looks at an election of Scott Brown in Massachusetts and says, keep pushing forward. And, and so I, I think we need to learn from that willpower and find some of that in our, ourselves. And then on the flip side, Obama, um, I think the single biggest mistake, and I'll wrap up with this, that he made, has made in his entire political career has been overreaching on Obamacare in, in the sense of he could have had 80% of Obamacare. It could have been 80% as bad if he would, just, would have just taken the outstretched hand of any of a number of Republican senators who were more than happy to deal with him and give this thing a bipartisan gloss, I think the political landscape would look so different if that had happened. But Obama didn't want to do that. He wanted 100%. He wanted to take it, ram it through on pure Democratic votes. And I think that's largely why we're, we're where we are today, where Obamacare can and should be repealed. Um, but I think there's a lesson in that for us, too, that if we insist on 100% theoretical purity on our alternative, we're kind of repeating the same mistake Obama made. And I think we need to repeal all of Obamacare, but then maybe we accept an alternative as, say, 20% of something we ideally might not like in a political vacuum. Michael? <laughs> well, I want to thank, first of all, Phil for writing a terrific book. Um, it is, uh, it's incredibly val valuable because it shows that Critics of Obamacare don't just have an alternative to Obamacare, they have three, or at least three. And there are lots of, uh, there are lots of important ideas. There are differences between the three camps. I hope we'll get into, uh, into those soon. I also want to thank Ovik and Jeff for, uh, for, for coming to speak at the Cato Institute today. But before we get into those, I want to talk about why, into those differences between the plans, or even the specifics about the plans, I want to talk about why we all have health care reform plans in the first place. It's because health care and health care reform are supposed to help real people. And I look around this auditorium and I can't help but notice there are a bunch of real people here. And I'm not talking about the health policy people on the stage. They're not, we're not real people. We live in la-la land. I'm talking about you folks in the audience. And so I want to ask you, I want to take a poll, a quick show of hands. How many of you have ever, how many of you would say that you have uh, uh, been to the doctor's office where you, uh, either the entire trip was a waste or most of the trip was a waste, and you're pretty sure that the next time you go to the doctor's office, it'll be a large, largely be a waste of time as well, okay? A fair number of people out there, a lot of time being, your time being wasted in, in, in doctor's offices. How many of you can email your doctor or check lab results online or do, do that sort of thing? Okay, much better, much better. But some of you still didn't, uh, still didn't raise your hands. You don't have those sorts of conveniences in healthcare that you expect in other areas of your life. How about this? How many of you out there knew that before Obamacare, you could, it, it was possible for you to purchase an option on a health insurance plan where you would pay just a fraction of the cost of health insurance for the, uh, and buy protection against your premium spiking if you got sick. How many of you knew you could buy effectively pre-existing condition insurance before Obamacare? Two, three hands? 
a couple of your health policy people, you're not real people. So, and agents have an, they're real people, but they have an unfair advantage. They have an unfair advantage. Almost no hands went up. It was possible before Obamacare to do this. Think about the power of this innovation, which came out as Congress was debating Obamacare. It came out, the market was innovating right underneath Congress's nose with a product that says to people, pay a fifth of the premium for, for uh, our, this health insurance plan, and you will buy the right to purchase it at any time at standard rates, or the rate that we quoted you, no matter how sick you get in the meantime. That's really what the president was trying to accomplish with Obamacare, is to provide people protection against pre-existing conditions. Here the market was doing that. The market was doing it in a much more affordable way. I mean, if, if it's a $200 policy and you have to pay 20% per, of, of the $200 per month policy, and you have to pay 20% in order to get this protection, you're not paying $200 a month. You're paying $40 a month. Think about what that would do to the problem of the uninsured in this country. A lot of young people who would think insurance is not worth the bother, who, who think they'd rather put up with mom and dad nagging them. Uh, then pay $200 a month for insurance because as bad as it is when mom and dad nag, it's not $200 a month bad. They might decide that, well, actually, it's $40 a month is, is, is much more affordable. And yeah, it's worth it to buy that and not have to listen to mom and dad. Mom and dad might decide that it's worth it to drop $40 a month on my kids so that I don't have to nag them in order to buy health insurance. But that pro and, and, so, and, and so this is an example of the market innovating in a way to solve this problem and doing so without the enormous regulatory apparatus that came with Obamacare's guarantee of coverage for people with pre-existing conditions. I mean, think about it. That ban on discrimination against people with pre-existing conditions is what necessitated the individual mandate. It's what necessitated a trillion dollars in, uh, in government uh, subsidies on health insurance, as well as countless other regulations on health insurance. Uh, and 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 uh, uh, and so forth. And so, the reason I point to this particular innovation is there are lots of innovations that are on the other side of Obamacare. But this and this is one that we will not see as long as Obamacare is on the books. So that's why I think we have agreement on this panel that Obamacare has got to go because we're not going to get those sorts of innovations that meet these very real needs that people have. These and 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 address very real fears that. That, that people and their parents have, uh, unless, unless, we, uh, unless we get rid of Obamacare. But it also highlights an important difference between the, the reform plans offered by different people on this panel, by these different schools of thought. Under the reform school uh, approach, that sort of innovative health insurance plan, that pre-existing condition insurance would not exist. Under the the uh, repeal and replace approach, it would not exist. Under the replace and reform approach, it would. That's a very important difference and that it makes it a, that has an impact on people's lives. The plan you choose is going to, or the approach to replace, to dealing with Obamacare that you choose is going to determine how, how much innovation we get that makes people's lives better. Thank you. Okay. Okay, if I could start with you, Ovik. One of the criticisms of your plan from the right, something that Jeff brought up, is that it doesn't necessarily repeal Obamacare. Um, could you respond to that criticism? No, first of all, it's not factually correct. So the plan 
is independent of repeal. You could repeal Obamacare and replace it with a structure that I describe, or you could transition from Obamacare into the structure I described. But isn't it true that it doesn't, I mean, the the point is that other plans require the repeal of Obamacare, but your plan- That's that's what I just said. So my plan doesn't require the repeal of Obamacare. You could repeal and replace using this approach, or you can transition to the end result. And that distinction is very important because again, when we go to the question of how do you win a general election? How do you get 60 votes in the Senate? It's one thing to win a Republican primary where repeal is the mantra. But if you want to convince non-ideological voters and persuadable people on the left of what you're trying to do, it's, I think it's very, people in Americans, if we, didn't, if we learned one thing from Obama's, if you like your plan, you can keep it, lie, it's that Americans really, really hate having their health coverage disrupted, even for people who aren't them. I think people are very sympathetic to that. Okay, this person was uninsured. They have coverage now. You're going to take that coverage away and replace it with a promise. That's one way to do it. A more persuasive way to do it is to say, look, we're going to transition you to a better system where you're going to have more choice and it's going to be more fiscally efficient and there aren't going to be the mandates and the regulations. And one thing I should mention is that while my plan is independent of repealing every word of Obamacare, even the more transitional version repeals big chunks of Obamacare. It repeals the employer mandate. It repeals the individual mandate. It repeals the tax hikes. It repeals the Medicaid expansion. It does enormous, all the things that I drop, you know, drop on that slide there, which are the main uh, components of Obamacare's intervention, extra intervention in the healthcare system, this plan would repeal. Now, Jeff, what do you think about that, this idea that even if, uh, generally speaking, polls overwhelmingly show that public disapproves of Obamacare, uh, there is a reticence to have any sort of disruption to people's healthcare arrangements. So does that mean that it would be difficult to sort of just repeal Obamacare? Um, Oh, I think absolutely. I mean, I think it's been clear since, well, since you said, since the Hillary Care days, and especially since, say, 2008 or 9, that Americans are waiting for conservatives to put forward their notion of uh, of what to deal do to deal with the the problems in our healthcare system, I, I think that's absolutely essential. And as I as I said before, I think minimal disruption is a real political selling point. Um, but I think you have to start with repealing all of Obamacare. I mean, Obamacare was passed as comprehensive legislation. We heard this repeatedly, and it needs to be comprehensively repealed. It, it takes the train in the wrong direction out of the station, and the first thing you have to do is get the train back to the station and. Um, I mean, Ovik talks, uses some clever language on this, but I, I mean, you can't say it's, you can either repeal Obamacare or not, and, and I mean, if, if, you're, if you have it as an option as part of your plan to not repeal Obamacare, that means you're not repealing Obamacare. And um, I, I just think that's the essential first. To me, the thing we have to keep in mind is that Obamacare has got to go. And, and, and on the polling, um, there was a, a poll that we actually commissioned at the 2017 project uh, last fall. It's, you can see it on our website that, that asked uh, about the, the question about repeal in the context of a, of a conservative alternative. We even called it a conservative alternative. And, and the polling came back with Americans in favor of repeal and moving to a conservative alternative by a margin of 60 to 32%. Almost all the polls you see that show that people somehow miraculously hate Obamacare but aren't so sure about repeal they don't ask about an alternative. They ask, should we try to fix Obamacare or repeal it? And, and then you get pretty much 50-50 tallies, which right there shows the incredible political weakness of this thing. So, 
Now, Michael, you've described the types of plans advocated by Jeff and Ovik as Obamacare light. Can you explain why you've characterized yeah, it that there, way? There, there, there are two big reasons. Um, you can say that, well, my, as, as Ovik does, that my plan is compatible with repealing Obamacare or not repealing Obamacare, and I'm not really concerned about, uh, about uh, whether you repeal the law and replace it with some... What I'm concerned about is, are the elements of Obamacare that are keeping those innovations bottled up, those innovations make people's lives better, are those parts of Obamacare still going to be there when your plan is fully implemented or when your plan is... or when my plan is fully implemented? And, uh, and, and my understanding of, of Ovik's plan is that it does retain some of what I think is the worst part of Obamacare, which are the re regulations that prevent those type of insurance innovations that I was talking about. And the regulations are called the ban on discrimination for, uh, uh, of, against people with pre-existing conditions or community rating price controls if you're a health policy wonk. That, thank you, thank you. The, uh, that, uh, that tell insurance companies that uh, for people of a given age, you cannot charge healthy people more than you charge sick people. And maybe for people of different ages, you might have to charge the healthy, the young a little more in order to charge the sick a little less. Uh, those sorts of regulations are what's keeping not only the sort of health insurance innovations that I've talked about from becoming a reality, you know, pre-existing condition insurance, but they're also blocking uh, uh, insurance policies, insurance innovations that would allow, that would offer a total satisfaction guarantee. Have any of you ever heard of a health insurance policy with a total satisfaction guarantee? <laughs> I always get laughter when I ask that question. And yet it's possible, but it's not possible as long as those sorts of uh, uh, government price controls remain on the books. I'll, and, and even if you got rid of those rating restrictions, both uh, Ovik's plan and, and, and Jeff's plan contain a type of government price control that says, well, we're, we're, the government will control, control the health insurance prices that insurance companies can charge new enrollees if those enrollees were previously covered, if they had continuous coverage. And that by itself will block that pre-existing condition insurance that, uh, that, that I talked about that existed before Obamacare. But the main reason, and I think the most tangible reason why I refer to these plans as Obamacare light, is not because they retain the, uh, the, the price controls or, or something like the price controls in Obamacare. It's because they use tax credits to subsidize health insurance. Not just tax credits, but refundable tax credits. Now, what is a tax credit? A tax credit is when, uh, if you owe the government $10,000 and they give you a $5,000 tax credit, that means your tax liability falls by $5,000. But it's a health insurance tax credit in Obamacare and in, in, in the in an OVIX plan and in Jeff's plan. So you only get that tax credit if you purchase a government a government approved health insurance plan. It's also uh, there are also refundable tax credits in in all three uh, approaches because and what does refundable mean? Well, that means that if the tax credit is five thousand dollars, but you only owe the government one thousand dollars in taxes. They reduce your tax liability by $1,000, but then they also give you $4,000 so that you are $5,000 better off and $4,000 of that is a government subsidy. That's redistribution of income. That's not a tax cut. And that is a feature of Obamacare that both of their plans would retain. And it's a problem not only because it retains that redistributive uh, element of Obamacare, but think about what I said before. You only get that tax credit if you purchase a government-approved health insurance plan. And so, in effect, what the health insurance tax credits do is they mimic the Obamacare's individual mandate. Under Obamacare's individual mandate or any sort of health insurance tax credit, you either buy a government-designed health insurance plan 
or you pay more money to the federal government, maybe thousands of dollars. And both approaches give the government an equal amount of control over the health your health insurance choices. And that, too, will not only increase the cost of the insurance uh, that, that you, uh, that's available to you, but also um, reduce innovation in health insurance plan design, uh, innovations that would make people's lives better. So that's why I call them Obamacare light. I'd like to respond to, to the points that have just been made. So uh, Michael Canna has been busy doing the Lord's work in the Supreme Court, so I forgive him for not necessarily being fluent in some of the details of, of my plan. Which, which is also why my plan doesn't have a nice glossy cover like yours. <laughs> uh, but it, but my, plan, my plan does keep the pre-existing condition structure of the ACA. It does do that. But on things like age rating and some of the other things that you mentioned, it doesn't uh, keep those. It gets rid of those. And, and the reason why I made that distinction is not because I don't agree with you in theory. I agree with Mike in theory that a libertarian insurance market with all the innovations that would come from that is better than a system where the government's distorting the market. But the, the, the calculation I've made is that getting rid of the pre-existing condition guarantee in Obamacare is politically toxic and won't have 60 votes in the Senate. It doesn't have the public support. But you can roll back a lot of the other regulations. And I think one thing that's really important that isn't, hasn't been a part of uh, the scope of what we've been talking about here is the huge advantage of my approach. And one of the reasons why I've backed it so strongly is it is a Trojan horse or a vehicle for privatizing Medicaid and Medicare over time. Because if you have a system that Democrats have partially supported and have partially rhetorically defended, and you say, look, you think it's okay for tax credits to be given to people who are uninsured who are 64. Why shouldn't it be, they be given to people who are 65? You think tax credits are great for people who are at 138% of the federal poverty level. Why isn't it also good for people at 90% of the federal poverty level? So all of a sudden, this mechanism, using subsidies to purchase private insurance, can be used to replace single-payer Medicaid and Medicare with a fully privatized healthcare system. And you want to talk about unleashing innovation. The way to unleash innovation is to get the government out of the health insurance business and let private companies deliver that service for low-income people, subsidize it, subsidize it for the people who can't afford it, who need the help. And to me, that is where the center of this country is, a center-right country. And I think you'd have a very politically stable system if you did that and a much less costly system than you have today because you're subsidizing the safety net, the people who need the help, but not upper-income people who don't. Can I, I want to get back to that, but if we first give you a chance to respond to Michael's uh, criticism. Yeah, I mean, the, my, my view of it is that Ovig's plan is Obamacare light. Ours is an Obamacare alternative, and Michael's is Obamacare forever, because we're not going to get to repeal with, with, with that. I, I, and I'd I, say the same about your plan, Jeff. It's Obamacare forever for the same reason. I want to... Um, I want to hit on the tax credit thing, though. I think this is an important thing. I mean, um, I view the tax credits in the 2017 project proposal and, and the Obamacare subsidies as being night and day different things, both in degree and kind. The Obamacare doesn't have tax credits, for starters. I mean, the Obama administration managed to pull the wool over the congressional budget office's eyes and get them to score these things as tax credits. But Michael explained how a tax credit works. He explained it correctly. A tax credit, Obamacare's tax credits do not lower anyone's taxes. There is not a single person or family in America who has a lower tax bill 
as a result of the Obamacare subsidies. These are pure and simple subsidies that go from taxpayers' wallets to Washington and then to insurance companies' pockets. They go to insurance companies. They do not reduce anybody. Nobody's tax burden when it comes to April 15th is reduced because of Obamacare. So for starters, they're not tax credits. And I think we would be well served to refer to them as subsidies and not tax credits. Um, the, the non-refundable part of a tax credit is surely unobjectionable to our side. I mean, you're talking about a massive tax cut for millions of, of, of mostly middle-class people in the individual market uh, who have for so long, for decades, not gotten a tax break for buying insurance, should get a tax break for buying insurance if their neighbors are going to get one for employer-based insurance. And, and, and I think that's actually the single piece of a, a winning alternative that our side has, has least fully appreciated the political power of. I mean, to offer a simple tax credit that in the case of, of, almost, of any single person who standardizes their deductions and makes even like $30,000 a year, this is pure tax cut. And to say, all right, you're 35 years old, you get a $2,100 tax cut to go buy insurance of your choice. And there's million, millions of these people. That is a huge political winner and could really help get us across the finish line. What, what would you say to Michael's point that it would uh, effectively require the government to define insurance for the purposes of claiming the credit? The government has provided an employer-based tax deduction for health insurance for 70 years, and it's had to define what qualifies as insurance in that context as well. So, I, I mean, this is no different than that. The key is, uh, is what the tax credit has attached to it. We would say, use the tax credit to buy whatever insurance you want, and if you buy cheaper insurance, pocket the savings and health savings account. Obamacare says use our subsidies to buy these very narrow, this very narrow ribbon of plans that sound like something out of Plato's Republic with the bronze, silver, gold, et cetera. And, uh, I mean, it's just entirely coercive. Um, the refundable part of the tax credit is not, I mean, admittedly, this is not something that if we were talking about this in 1790, we would not be proposing this. Uh, but as far as beating back Obamacare, I don't know how you get there without, without this. There, I mean, there are families, you can just go to the Kaiser Health Calculator if you want. There are fam, like a family of five in Milwaukee, Wisconsin that makes $25,000 a year, I think it is. They get a, a I think it's $30,000 a year. They get more than a $20,000 Obamacare subsidy for their premiums alone. And then they get additional lavish Obamacare taxpayer-funded subsidies for their out-of-pocket costs. Now, you could have Ted Cruz in the White House or Ben Carson or, or for that matter, Ronald Reagan and 60 Republican senators, and you are not going to get those 60 Republican senators to sign into law, repeal, and a replacement that takes $20,000 away from lower middle class families and gives them nothing or essentially nothing. And I just think that the refundable part of the tax credit is, is the slightly bitter pill to that we need to swallow to get to full repeal of Obamacare. And, and, if, and if we don't think that's the case, then I, I would ask you, Michael, how do we get there otherwise? Or is it just well, not that? Well, I don't, think we, I don't think we would give them nothing. <coughs> I wouldn't be for a plan if, if it gave people in that situation nothing. One thing it would free them from is being trapped in a low-wage job because that's what Obamacare does. It says to them you can get the $20,000 subsidy if that's what it is, but it disappears if you try to climb the economic ladder. The much better, and that creates a disincentive for them to do so because they could, if they work more and earn more, they they lose money. They don't gain money. The better way to bring health insurance within their reach is through innovations that reduce the cost of of, of medical care and thereby the cost of health insurance, and lets them choose 
uh, gives them more f uh, freedom to, design, to choose a health insurance plan that they want so that uh, when you drive prices down like that and, 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 and uh, make health care more, more affordable for people that way, you're not trapping people in poverty anymore. You are freeing them from poverty. You're making it easier for them to climb the economic ladder. And, and I think that you know, there's, an, there's an important point here about, uh, about uh, innovations. Ovik said that, uh, that what's going to drive innovation is to get an insurance company, uh, government out of the insurance business and let it be private. That's not what it is. Putting the name private on something doesn't, doesn't foster innovations. What, what fosters innovations is freedom. The freedom to write contractual terms different from the ways others did before, the, pre the ways that pe people did before. Freedom to combine services in, in new and innovative ways. And that freedom is, is, is lost when the government is defining what your health insurance plan has to be in order to get this massive tax credit. So you're not going to get innovation in health insurance. Well, you might get some more innovation than you got under Obamacare uh, under, uh, under your plans, but you're not going to get all the innovations that people deserve if you still, still have government de defining uh, what their health insurance plan has to look like. Completely finally, agree. I completely agree. There's fin no and, 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 disagreement there. And, and finally, another reason why tax credits under your plans are more like Obamacare than maybe you think. There are people for whom Obamacare's tax credit is a tax cut. For the most part, if you get an advance payment of a tax credit, in other words, if you take advantage of that tax credit all through the calendar year, th then that tax credit takes the form of the, the IRS just writes a check to your insurance company. The amount you pay the IRS doesn't go down at all. If you owe the IRS $10,000 over the course of the year, or, or $12,000 you're paying $1,000 a month, that doesn't change at all. You're still paying the IRS the same amount. The IRS is just writing a check to the insurance companies. So for those people, and most people who, who take advantage of Obamacare's tax credit, that's how it works. But there are some people who don't take that so-called advance payment of a tax credit. They wait until April 15th of the following year to take advantage of that tax credit. And when they do, or when they reconcile their advance payment against the, their, these credit for which they're actually eligible, they get a tax cut. They get, they get their tax liability reduced. And that is not only how Obamacare works, that's how your tax credits will work if you're going to have advance payments. Listen, I mean, what I would say, Mike, is again, I think all your points about how government distorts the health insurance market are true. And our job as reformers are try to, to try to liberate the health insurance market as much as possible on the health care market as much as possible, that people can get health care the way they want without government interference. We all agree on that. The difference between our plans is not based on differing with you on that philosophical point. The difference is what we think is politically possible. Jeff has a view as to what's politically possible that's different from mine and different from yours. Uh, he says that I'm Obamacare light and you're Obamacare forever. Bobby Jindal, who's a supporter of your school of thought, says Jeff's plan is Obamacare light. So people can call names all they want, but at the end of the day, if we're just being intellectually honest, where we disagree is about what's politically possible in a general election and what can get 60 votes in the Senate. So in that spirit, Michael, you, you would say, if, you, you, if you're advising a presidential candidate, you'd say, your answer to this family of five in Milwaukee that gets more than $20,000 in Obamacare subsidies plus out-of-pocket subsidies would be, we're going to make your subsidies go away, but we're going to encourage innovation that will lower health costs. And, and, and you, you, that would be your advice? Well, first of all, you, you need to do a number of things in order to make a plan politically feasible so that it could pass. Uh, you would want to, first of all, tell them you're going to get rid of all the things that are making their health insurance so expensive that they need that subsidy in, in the first place. You're going to get rid of, say, all of Title I of 
of Obamacare, the community rating price controls, all of the mandated benefits they may not want, the restrictions on out-of-pocket costs uh, and out-of-pocket exposure, including uh, deductibles, uh, so they can purchase a higher deductible plan if that's all that they can afford. You're going to bring health insurance within their reach that way. You're not going to find. You're not going to come up with a plan that uh, that that gives them as much as Obamacare did, because Obamacare's strategy is just to shower them with as much coverage and as many subsidies as possible. Uh, but you will, for the vast majority of pe people, provide them uh, coverage that uh, meets their needs, that doesn't trap them in low-wage jobs. And there will still be a small group of Americans who have pre-existing conditions who cannot afford coverage for those conditions. I recognize that Congress is not going to pass a bill unless it has something in place that, that works for them, something in place that provides them access to the medical care that they need. But what Obamacare's experience has shown us is, first of all, that, that is a very small group of people, that Congress can do something for them at a much lower cost. We know this than, 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 than Obamacare or even the tax credits that you propose, because a lot of those tax credits are going to go to people who don't need subsidies. Obamacare showed us with the uh, program I call the Pre-Existing Condition Insurance Program that the number of people in that situation who have a pre-existing condition and don't, don't have access to coverage anywhere else is vanishingly small. I think that the, uh, the Congressional Budget Office estimated it was going to be 200,000 people in that program and they had a hard time even reaching 100,000 people and it cost something like $5 billion over a couple of years instead of a trillion dollars over 10 years, or the, the cost of your, uh, uh, your tax credit plans, Congress will need to have something in, uh, or any plan that passes Congress will need to have something like that in it. But that sort of targeted high-risk pool approach, I think, is a much more responsible way uh, to do something, to make the plan politically feasible, because it, it deals with that discrete problem in a discrete way and doesn't destroy the health insurance market or destroy flexibility and innovation for the other 95, 97% of the market, or 99% of the market. If I can just interject here, I mean, one th feature of OVIC's uh, plan that sets it apart, which he raised, is what it does to Medicare and Medicaid. And essentially, if we look at it, right, Obamacare relative to a free market system obviously represents a huge expansion of government. However, relative to the fully single-payer style Medicare and Medicaid, an exchange-based system at least offers some sort, of, um, some sort of choice. It's something that is sort of an element of uh, Paul Ryan's proposed premium support model for healthcare for Medicare. And so what Ovik says is why not reform and take away a lot of the onerous parts of Obamacare, reform these exchanges, and use them, as he's described, as a sort of jujitsu maneuver to try to actually um, change Medicare and Medicaid, which, as his chart showed, are the huge components of federal spending long term. So what do you, you know, what do you say about that, about you know, having a plan and approach to try to take a more holistic view of health care? I, mean, I, I think it's I think that sort of notion is getting up in, in political no man's land. Where I mean, you, Phil wrote about this quite well in his book. I wish I'd brought the passage. That uh, basically, um, what Ovik is proposing is to try to convince Democrats that he would just be putting these people from Medicare and Medicaid onto Obamacare, and try to convince Republicans that he would not just be putting these people from Medicare and Medicaid onto Obamacare. And it, I mean, it's not going to satisfy anyone. The Great Society programs are 
are, are in a lot firmer cement at this point. That's not to say that they're here forever. We shouldn't push to reform them, and it's not essential. But Obamacare is in very tenuous, wet cement. It ought to be pulled up and yanked out. And I think the focus ought to be on, let's get rid of what we can get rid of now and not, not focus on other things. Well, so just for the, for the uninitiated, for the non-health policy wonks, the differences here are, uh, are important to highlight. Medicare is an insurance program. The government is the insurance company. It provides a standard package of benefits with standard cost sharing and deductibles. You can buy additional coverage on top of that, but it is a government-run insurance policy, really. Medicare Advantage is something different. Medicare Advantage, it, oh, and I should say, under traditional Medicare, the government is writing, because it's, the government's the insurance company, the government's writing the checks to the doctors and hospitals. Under Medicare Advantage, it's a little bit different. Medicare Advantage, the government is contracting with insurance companies, uh, many insurance companies, to provide health insurance to uh, seniors who opt into Medicare Advantage. I think it's about 20% of seniors choose a Medicare Advantage plan. And they choose from among competing insurers. The government's role here is not the insurance com- to be the insurance company. It's r- really to tell the insurance companies what they have to offer and then write them a check. Now, I'm not convinced. Oh, and so I, sh- I should mention, this is a lot like Obamacare, actually. Obamacare's exchanges work uh, in much the same way. The government is telling insurance companies in the exchanges, here's what you have to offer, and then writing them checks. Um, I'm not convinced that Medicare Advantage or the Medicare Advantage exchange approach is necessarily better than traditional Medicare, necessarily, because I'm not sure why it's better for the government to write checks to insurance companies than it is for the government to write checks to doctors and hospitals. I, so during the debate over Obamacare, I actually raised this, the initial debate over Obamacare, I actually raised this point a lot. I said that what the Democrats were trying to do is they were trying to give us Medicare Advantage for all trying to remind Democrats that maybe they don't like this plan very much because they spend most of their time attacking Medicare Advantage, which is one of the reasons why OVIC's plan has been criticized. It wouldn't get any Democratic support for that kind of shift to from traditional Medicare to Medicare Advantage. And so if you're trying to reform or open up Obamacare, at the same time you're doing that, you're biting off and, uh, maybe more than, whether, than any Democrats would be willing to chew. Um, I think a better approach is to... Instead of having the government write checks to the doctors in the hospitals or having the government write checks to the insurance companies, have the government write checks. If the government has to write checks to anybody, have the government write checks to the consumer. Give them the money and let them spend it on a health insurance plan of their choosing or no health insurance plan. So the Medicare would operate more like Social Security. Now, uh, when you do that, that would be a massive deregulation of, of, of health insurance and health care. And that, I think, is one of the most important things that we can do to bring healthcare within the reach of low-income people. Because imagine if you all of a sudden had 50 million seniors spending their own money on healthcare instead of uh, health insurance and healthcare instead of spending someone else's money on it. You you would see a dramatic uh, increase in cost-saving innovations and price competition that brings healthcare within the reach of that family that we're concerned about. So, so I think that is a that is a better approach than uh, than trying to migrate Medicare traditional Medicare into an exchange like approach. So let me respond. Uh, one thing that's very important to understand about Medicare and Medicaid. I showed that chart up earlier, the red and the blue bars. So we have an 18 trillion dollar federal debt in this country, and I think most of us in this room are are horrified by that fact. But the unfunded liabilities for the Medicare and Medicaid programs combined are north of $100 trillion. So again, we can repeal or replace and do all sorts of things to Obamacare all we want. 
but we're still saddling our grandkids and their grandkids with $100 trillion in unfunded liabilities, along with the $18 trillion that we already have on the books. So we can't afford to do what Jeff suggests, which is to be complacent about and make our peace with $100 trillion in unfunded liabilities in Medicare and Medicaid. Jeff's plan explicitly repeals, Obama, actually Obamacare, one thing I sort of alluded to in the slides, for all the bad things Obamacare does, one of the things it does is it actually cuts Medicare spending by, over the next 10 years, about $850 billion. Jeff's plan would repeal those cuts. He would actually expand Medicare by $850 billion. He said in the document, uh, that the, the white paper that he's described, that uh, that's a good thing to do because we shouldn't let Medicare politics get in the way of repealing Obamacare. To him, that's a more important priority. To me, the whole thing, I don't care whether it's Obamacare, Medicare, Medicaid, I want to roll back government intervention wherever it comes from. And I do think it's very, very important to address Medicare and Medicaid. So now, let me go to what Mike Cannon said. Mike said, well, you're not going to get democratic support for offering people private coverage uh, through a premium support system. He thinks that Democrats won't support that. But he seems to be arguing that Democrats would support completely voucherizing the system and giving uh, consumers the dollars to buy whatever they want. Now, uh, I would, to say I disagree with his political assessment would be an understatement. I think there's absolutely no chance that Democrats would go from Medicare to the system he's describing, which I think would be a great system. But there's no chance of Democrats supporting that. There are centrist Democrats, not the hard left, not the true blue ideologues like Obama, but there are centrist Democrats who are open to more, uh, more of a role for private insurers in delivering a benefit to seniors in need. Ron Wyden is an example. Ron Wyden signed on to Paul Ryan's Medicare reform plan, which is very similar uh, to what I'm describing. So again, it's very, 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 very important. It's absolutely essential. If we give up on reforming Medicare and Medicaid, we, should, we shouldn't even be in this room. The Cato Institute shouldn't exist. We shouldn't even bother to fight the battle against big government because the, battle, the war has already been lost if we give up on Medicare and Medicaid. So we've got to reform those programs. And if some kernels of Obamacare can be a useful strategy in reforming those problems and getting out from under that $100 trillion in unfunded liabilities, we are obligated to try. But on, on well, that point, you mentioned Ron Wyden. I mean, Ron Wyden, at the time when he signed on to, to Paul Ryan's approach on premium support, he said it was assuming that Obamacare is off the table, and they didn't talk about Obamacare in those negotiations. So the question is, once you put uh, ob your Obamacare changes to it, can you really win over right. some of so, these so, so, so the question, I think it's a great question, I appreciate you asking it, Phil, is why would any Democrat support the kind of plan that I'm describing? Wouldn't they, why wouldn't they all just oppose it blindly? And look, this is healthcare reform, it's entitlement reform, it's hard, right? So I'm not promising uh, that I've got the magic solution to massive Democratic support. But I do think you can pick off six Democrats in conservative states. I do think that. And here's why. Under, under my plan, because we replace Medicaid with private insurance. Now, I don't know how many people in this room have read my book, How Medicaid Fails the Poor, but I go through in, in excruciating detail the medical literature on how Medicaid produces no better health outcomes than having no insurance at all. And, and we spend you know, trillions of dollars on this program, right? But there's enormous data to suggest that actually private insurance does improve health outcomes. So if we replace Medicaid 
with private insurance, again, subsidizing the cost of that insurance for people in need. We can dramatically improve their access to physicians and hospitals. We can dramatically improve their health outcomes. And we can actually cover more people than Obamacare while spending less money. And so I think where you see a lot of those centrist Democrats, they say, you know what? I don't care whether the benefit is delivered through a government insurance, a single-payer insurer, or a private insurer. What I care about is making sure that poor people have better access to health care and making sure uninsured people have better access to health coverage. And if you can deliver that through a more targeted mechanism that spends less money but does it through private insurance, there are people in the center left who are open to that approach. Okay, and yeah, if can you... Can I talk about, uh, just comment on one uh, theme that's been running through here, and, and you did m mention it explicitly, Ovik, is that, uh, is that the differences between us are largely our differences, differences in how we judge what is politically feasible and what is not. And that's, that might be true, but it, and it's almost the entire truth. I think that there's also a difference of approach here, which is that uh, I, I would say that both of your plans, more than mine, do confine themselves to what seems politically feasible. And the problem, and, and that's not my approach, and that's never been the Cato Institute's approach. We try to expand the universe of ideas that are considered politically feasible or acceptable to talk about in polite society. That's why the Cato Institute began talking about Social Security reform in the late 1970s, and it was 30 years uh, before we had a president uh, that would advocate something like Social Security uh, personal accounts. So we try to expand what is called the Overton window, the, the range of ideas that are, considered, uh, that are considered politically feasible or acceptable to talk about. And, uh, and we do that because, uh, and I think you can see why we might do that in your plans. If all you look at, if all you uh, focus your energies on are the narrow range of options that seem politically feasible, then that's all you'll get. Then you won't expand what is politically feasible. You won't get to a better place than, than, uh, than that range of uh, options affords you. And sometimes you'll end up adopting ideas that don't just that aren't just problematic um, because they're not ideal, but because they move us in the wrong direction. One of the big problems with I, with uh, with uh, either an Obamacare tax credit or either of your tax credits is. If we can see that the government should be spending money to provide health insurance for people, we're going to lose that debate because we will always be outbid by those who think that is a proper role for government. And so any tax credit that you leave in place after repealing Obamacare is going to be expanded by those who believe in, this, uh, in that approach uh, more than we do. I'm not saying that, you know, if, if you gave me, if you put a button in front of me that said, push this button and the 2017 plan will immediately uh, 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 replace Obamacare, I'd push that button. I would, because we would be in a better place. But I don't want to compromise with myself. I don't want to have that debate with myself. I would rather offer an alternative vision. And if we had to ha accept uh, tax credits at the last minute uh, in order to get something better than Obamacare passed, then I would, then, uh, then I would say go ahead and do that. But I want to put a plug in for trying to expand that Overton window and, and offer an example of how it works. After Obamacare passed, a lot of people thought that it would be a fool's errand to tell states that they, to try to persuade states not to implement the law. Because states always implement federal programs and, and you're just going to lose and it's not politically feasible. Uh, I did not take that advice. A number of other groups did not take that advice. We went out to states and we educated state officials on why it was not in their interest. 
right. to implement uh, health insurance exchanges or Medicaid. I, I tried to get them not to implement Medicaid before the Supreme Court made uh, the, the Medicaid expansion Obamacare optional, just to show off my libertarian cred. Nobody listened to me until after the Supreme Court made it optional, and, then, and now we've got 22 states, I think it is, that have not uh, expanded Medicaid. When you try to push the Overton window uh, and expand it like that, good things can happen. You can't predict it. As you said, I, don't, I, don't, I can't see the, the future. But good things can happen. And I think more of the free market movement should, should be trying to expand the Overton window that way because if you, can show, if, you, if you can paint a vision of what a fully reformed, free health care and health insurance market looks like, that's going to inspire people and, and, and pull them in your direction. So, so let me respond to, to a couple things you said there. First of all, I totally agree with you about the value that Cato brings to the ecosystem by expanding the Overton window. That's what we should all be trying to do, and I salute the Cato Institute for doing it. I salute you, Michael Tanner. I'm honored to be here before you uh, for all those reasons. Uh, so that's absolutely right. But there's one thing you said that I think was very telling and very interesting. I want to ask this audience. How many of you believe that the way to ensure that more Americans are employed is through more government? <laughs> Nobody, right? So you, none of you believe that we can't outbid the left when it comes to employing more people. How many of you actually, believe... Actually, I, did, I raised my hand because if you want full employment, the government can do that. Just ban all farm equipment. <laughs> uh, how, how, many of you, how many of you believe that, 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 that the way to have smartphones in the hands of more Americans is through more government? Nobody, right? So we don't say, well, we can't outbid the left in terms of having more smart, smartphones, so let's not even bother. But somehow when it comes to health care, so many people on our side have, have adopted an explicitly defeatist attitude that the only way to ensure that more people have access to health insurance and health care is through more government. And by doing so, that's, I think, you know, Phil, you opened with the whole point about how the, the right has always had a problem in terms of coming up with better health care solutions. It's because we fundamentally accepted the premise of the left that the only way to expand access to health care and health coverage is through more government. You heard Michael say it, that we can't outbid the left on expanding access to health insurance, so we shouldn't even try. And to me, that is a complete betrayal of the free market philosophy. The free market philosophy and our empirical understanding of how free markets work but is that more people would have access to health care, and more people would have access to health insurance if we actually deployed free markets. But that's not what I said. It, that is what you said. No, what I'm talking about when I say we can't outbid the left is not that we can't provide better health care. Of course we could, or I wouldn't be here. What I mean when I say we can't outbid the left is if you create a government subsidy or, or you sign off on, you know, it is a good idea for government to provide subsidies to people with health insurance. If you concede that point, then you have, uh, concede, then the left will always outbid you. I was talking about government spending, not abundance, yeah, not, so, so, not better, more affordable health care. That's not true. So if you, there are countries around the world that have a more market-oriented system than the U.S. that spend a fraction of what we spend. My plan reduces federal spending on health insurance by $10.5 trillion over 30 years. Singapore, which has a universal system of HSAs and, and catastrophic coverage, which has government intervention. It's not a libertarian system. We should make sure that everyone knows that. But they spend a fifth of what we spend in terms of government spending per capita. So you can actually liberate the health insurance market, subsidize it for the people who truly can't afford it, the truly poor and needy, but get government out of the way for everyone else. 
And if you did that, you'd spend a fraction of what we spend and you'd actually cover more people because what we do in our system is the worst of both worlds. We massively subsidize health insurance for upper income people through the employer tax code and through Medicare. I pay taxes so that Mitt Romney can have single-payer government health insurance. Uh, and yet, as a result of that, and because of the massive malinvestment that's driven by the tax code, we spend so much of our income on health insurance instead of actually spending on the things we want to actually buy. I thought, I thought Mitt Romney turned down Medicare. I, is that true? I ask you as a former Romney advisor. Uh, if he has, that's, I'm, I'm not aware of that. But uh, you know, there's, a, there's an individual mandate in Medicare, something we should repeal, by the, the way. The only that's to a, pay for it, not to enroll. That's another important. Your social security benefits. Another important disagreement up here is that I mean, what Ovik is just talking about there is that he doesn't think Obamacare is quite redistributive enough. I mean, he, he thinks it goes to too many people that are too close to the middle class, and and I think that's the, one of the worst problems with Obamacare is it's a, a total project of redistribution of wealth and moving of power and control to Washington D.C. I mean, the only people who benefit from Obamacare essentially are the near poor, the poor, and the near elderly, and and to say, I mean. I think it is it's certainly not reflective of conservative principles to say that, that, a, that a tax cut in the employer market should not be made available to all these middle-class Americans in the individual market. If, if we will simply equalize the tax code in that way, leave the employer market mostly alone for the time being, give millions of, of, of individuals in the, in the individual, sorry, millions of people in the individual market tax cuts to where they get the, basically the same tax treatment as, as their neighbors who get employer-provided insurance, we can win this thing. We can get rid of Obamacare. But I think we have to continue to just keep our eye on the ball. Not, I mean, Ovik's focused on fixing Obamacare and, and trying to reform Medicare and Medicaid. Reforming Medicare and Medicaid is essential. But I think for now, keeping our eye on the ball of repealing Obamacare is crucial. And I do think we need to, in the end, politically feasible things are the only things that are feasible. So I, I think we have to keep that in mind as well. Do we have time for questions? I think the I, I think so. We were having so much fun up here. Yeah, we did, lost track of time. Um, over here. There are several of us that are here um, from the national. If you could wait for the mic, please. There's a mic sure, coming down. I'm sorry. Thank you. There are several of us that are here from the National Association of Health Underwriters Convention, and we are the ones who write these policies for people. And I have the rates that we had in our state in Kansas from 2009 before Obamacare was implemented. And Michael was talking about for a young person, a 25-year-old paying $40, it would have cut your whole policy would have only been $44, your entire premium. If you were uh, decided to delay and so your coverage, pre-existing condition coverage, if the you, option yeah. to buy that would have been far, far less. Maybe. Had you decided to delay coverage till you had an event that caused you to be of high risk, maybe your premium would have been one hundred and forty-one dollars. Okay. Now, if they were to buy a policy on the exchange, it's one hundred and fifty-one dollars for everybody that's twenty-five years old. You're talking monthly. So basically, monthly. So basically, everybody is now on the high risk pool. That's what we see. And if you are doing any type of overcoming Obamacare that doesn't include repeal, we have to see, because of what we see every day and what we know, you have to reach, allow states who had risk rating to return to risk rating. There was no one in our state, and I pulled all of our legislators, I know our governor well, did anyone ever come to you and say, the individual market's broken, please fix it? No one. Not one person. We, didn't, we don't have a problem there. Thank you. But Obamacare now created this problem. They return to risk rating. Do you mean on 
for health status, for health, not just health age? risk rating, correct. Risk rating. Okay. Um, but and, and we had no age banding, so it could be a broad difference between a 64-year-old and a and a 19-year-old. And do you have a, do you have a question? Yes, and here's <laughs> my question. Thank you, Michael. So my question is: Are there any plans out there that you're aware of that are on our side? that are looking to educate the public on sending a waiver back to the states, allowing us to do risk rating, allow our states to be able to fix it, and we can show you we already have low-rate models. That's my question. That's actually one of, the, uh, one of the options that is being discussed in Congress right now. If the Supreme Court rules against the government in a case called King v. Burwell, uh, ruling is due, the, the, the oral arguments will be next week, and a ruling will be due by June, and or the end of June, if the government loses, what that means is that Obamacare's, or I should say the subsidies that the president is currently issuing to Obamacare enrollees in maybe 38 states would disappear, and that would cause some disruption. So what, what one thing that Congress is, uh, is looking at is giving states the option of opting out of Obamacare. I think that what Congress should do is just repeal the whole thing, because if those subsidies dis disappear, um, you want to give people relief by ma making the regulations that are making their health insurance so expensive disappear. You know, if, if, you, if you don't get any, that's the reason for the <laughs> subsidies in the first place. If the antidote disappears, what do you do? You stop taking the poison. Uh, so I think that they should do that for every state, but one of the options that's being discussed in Congress is uh, letting states do that on a state-by-state -state basis. And states, uh, in anticipation of that, are looking at laws that would say, okay, if these subsidies disappear, if Congress gives the, us the ability to opt out of Obamacare, here's what our rating rules would look like. Here's what our mandated benefits would look like, and making them much more flexible and, uh, and, and freeing up their markets so that they could have more affordable options and the sort of innovations that I was talking about. Um, over there, um, just behind you. Um, two comments that I want you to all comment on. Uh, the first one, you know, you've been going back here about the definition of insurance and how important it is if you, you, know, you have a tax credit, you have to define insurance. Um, uh, well, it's clear to me looking at all these reform plans, and I've looked at most of them, is you're not thinking about the definition of insurance. You know, uh, why don't you try to define it in such a broad way that people have maximum flexibility with whatever the tax treatment is? And Michael Cannon, you're not off the hook on this either because you're still in favor of large HSAs to purchase health insurance, so you need to think about it as well. Uh, the second one is with regard to the tax credit being redistributed. Uh, re yeah, that. <laughs> um, to me, it seems kind of as compared to what? Medicaid? Um, you know, if, if a refundable tax credit gives poor people on Medicaid a chance to get off of Medicaid and into the private market, we could actually possibly see, even see Medicaid wither away. And given all the problems with Medicaid, I mean, it's command and control, price controls, states play financial shenanigans with it, it's a political pork barrel for large medical interests, particularly hospitals. I don't think you'd have half those problems with a refundable tax credit. Um, I understand your, your point about the left always trying to, to outbid us, but to me it's a choice between that or, you know, sticking with the Medicaid system, which, you know, I, I think every one of you is gonna, uh, would agree is, is a terrible system. And I'll I just leave it at that. 
I think that's a great point. If you want to, I mean, Obamacare is largely a massive Medicaid expansion. And the CBO has said that so far, more people have been dumped into Medicaid under Obamacare than enrolled in private insurance, and that they see that same trend continuing for the next, next decade and presumably beyond. Obama never talks about the Medicaid expansion because it's not very politically attractive, but if we're going to roll back that entire Medicaid expansion as we would under the 2017 Project Alternative, then if you want to make those people eligible to, to get off of Medicaid, and either, even people who are on Medicaid based on pre-Obamacare rules, get them off Medicaid and, and into a situation where they're shopping for value in the free market, You've got to make them eligible for the tax credits that w would enable that to happen. So I think that's, that's a great point and another reason why, that, why the sort of approach, approach we're advocating we think would be a winner and, and would move things in a conservative direction from the pre-Obamacare status quo. On defining insurance, we do define it. We say licensed and solvent. Yeah, I, I think I, I would echo those comments. So I think the way you define insurance is to say whatever's legal in a state. Right? The federal government can't tell the state what to do in terms of the state's own prerogatives on regulation. All you can do at the congressional level, or all you ought to do at the congressional level, is to say that uh, anything you want to buy at the state level, the state calls insurance, that's good, for, that's good enough for me. Uh, and then broaden it as much as possible so that people can pay as much as they want to directly for health insurance. Let's go back to, the, you talk about the definition of insurance, the definition of insurance in the rest of the economy is it's meant to prevent catastrophic financial loss. We buy car insurance so that if you crash your car or you get into a car accident or someone steals your car, you can get uh, a financial recovery from that financial and economic damage to you, but you don't expect insurance to pay for your gasoline or your wiper fluid or your car wash. If we paid for a car insurance the way we pay for health insurance, everyone would get the deluxe car wash with the undercarriage whatever with the fancy shampoo, and the car wash would cost 200 bucks a trip instead of 15 right? So... So, that, so yes, you want to move as much in a libertarian direction as possible, but we also have to keep in mind that uh, the reason some of these regulations exist is because there's public support for them. So we've got to fight that battle and move that bar as much as we can, but also be cognizant of where public support is. Now, I'm still on the hook. David says I'm still on the hook, so I better respond. Uh, I think that if you're going to have a government definition of health insurance, uh, Defining it as whatever a state considers health insurance is the second best definition. Uh, the best definition uh, is defining it as whatever any state considers health insurance, so that you could buy insurance that your own state doesn't recognize as insurance, but uh, another state does. Uh, you'd be able to buy that uh, across state lines. But you're right. The tax reform, the health tax reform idea that I've advanced is called large health savings accounts or to expand health savings accounts. If, uh, if you have uh, employer-sponsored insurance right now, your employer fam with family coverage, your employer right now controls about $11,000 of your income and chooses your health plan for you, which I think is a little more like a government program than a free market. Uh, and what large health savings accounts would do is they would let you, you control that $11,000 Ta still tax-free, if you put it into a large health savings account, then you can buy insurance from any source tax-free. And this is where David's point comes in. He said, I'm not off the hook because even in my own plan, there is a tax break for health insurance. And so the government has to define what health insurance... I only said you weren't off the hook for insurance. Right. So the government has to define what health insurance is, even under my plan. And here I am attacking them for this. How dare I? Well, here's, here's how I dare. Because the value, I'm, because I'm trying to get rid of these definitions entirely, and maybe they, they, they would say the same, 
But the value of the tax break for health insurance when you have large health savings accounts is very, very, is much smaller than the value under a health insurance tax credit because you don't have to use the money that you take and put in your health savings account for insurance at all. So if the providers or insurance companies wanted to lard up the definition of qualified insurance with all sorts of mandates, you have you, you have exit power. You can say, I'm not going to buy that insurance at all. You can say, I'm going to save all of that money in my large health savings account, thousands and thousands of dollars per year. That provides not just a check on the government doing that, but it diminishes the incentive for providers to lobby for all those mandates in the first place. And it diminishes the incentive for the left to try to load up that definition with price controls. So... And I do see large health savings accounts as a transition toward a tax system that provides uh, a crucial transition step toward a tax system that provides no tax breaks for health-related uses of income at all. And so that's how I dare. And um, just, I guess, over there in the blue, if you want to turn the microphone. Hi, thanks for your comments. so I want to follow up on something that Mr. Anderson uh, mentioned in the beginning, that he said that health care is not a right. And I want to get um, Ovik's view and Michael's view on how they think that kind of notion and whether they agree with it or not, how that fits into free market reform. And related to that, um, I think one more difference that didn't come out, but in the book I, I, it was there, was what is the goal of health care reform? Ovik, I know you're a supporter of universal coverage, so I'm wondering if the other panelists can comment on that as well. I think healthcare is a right. That's why I think doctors should have to work for free. <laughs> How dare they charge me if I have a right to healthcare? Uh, calling healthcare a right is going to make it disappear. You're not going to get to abundance, which is what we actually want. What you need, uh, if 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 uh, if you want abundance, if you want healthcare that's better, more affordable, and uh, more secure, then what you need are markets, and that means the government shouldn't declare healthcare to be a right. Uh, I mean, veterans have a right to healthcare. How's that working out? So, so, you know, I actually, I wrote a piece for Forbes called, Yes, Healthcare is a Right, an Individual Right. Actually, it was a speech that I gave before the Yale Political Union that I uh, transcribed. And the point was this, that those of us who believe in the negative rights concept, yes, we should have the right to choose our doctor, to pay for health insurance how we want, free of government interference. Healthcare is a right insofar as all the things that we do with our own property and our own money are rights, right? And our own choices are rights. So no, I don't believe in the left con- leftist, leftist concept that you know, people have a right to our money or to some sort of government service. Absolutely not. But we don't believe that people have a negative right to education. Yet I think most of us, maybe not all of us in this room, but most of us do think it's a good thing that we strive as a country to make sure that every American has access to a primary and secondary education. And I think in the same way that it's a legitimate goal of public policy to ensure that every American has access to a good education. It's a legitimate goal of public policy to ensure that every American has access to good health care. That doesn't mean they have a fundamental right to it, but in the richest country in the world, surely this is something that it's worth trying to achieve if we could do, th- do so through the free market. And on your goal of health care question, which I think applies to me as well, I would say the goal of health care is to get the government's, health care reform, sorry, is to get the government's foot off the scale um, and, and in this case, I mean, the, the main thing that needs to be done based on the pre-Obamacare world is, is give a tax break in the individual market that treats those people roughly equally to the employer-based market. And then, of course, we have 
Obamacare is like a giant elephant on the scale or a brontosaurus or something like that. So the main thing is to get that out of the way. Um, okay, I think we have maybe time for one more question uh, back there. Uh, um, my question, um, I, th I think, is mostly to Avik. Uh, you said a little earlier that uh, health insurance should uh, protect people against catastrophic loss rather than pay for, uh, for regular expenses. I, I completely agree. I'd say that's the main obstacle to improvement, not of the health insurance, but of the health care market. But what's not clear to me is how does the plan you are proposing help that goal? I mean, both uh, Michael Cannon's plan with uh, the HSA and uh, Jeffrey's plan also allowing the tax credits to go into the HSA help remove the big advantage that the current system has to, uh, on insurance against rather than paying out of your own pocket. I'm wondering what does your plan do to to help yeah, that. So my, my plan does similar things. So it liberalizes the health insurance market so you can buy the kinds of catastrophic plans that are now illegal under Obamacare and it allows you to take the remainder of the tax credit uh, and put it in HSA. So the idea is to maximize the degree to which the tax credit can be converted to an HSA uh, and, and minimize the degree to which the government is dictating the type of insurance you want to buy. So the idea is kind of almost similar. It's not exactly where, say, Ben Carson is. Ben Carson famously became a national political figure by saying, why not give everyone an HSA at birth and let them accumulate money through that to pay for their health expenditures? My plan doesn't go that far. But it goes as far as you can go in that direction, in my view, uh, in terms of what's politically possible. Did either of you have anything to add to that? No. All right, well, uh, that's all we have time for. I, I just have yep. one more thing to add, oh, yep. which is that Bill, Phil's book is probably uh, the best way to get a really comprehensive understanding of the differences between these three approaches. So I recommend that you all read it. Uh, the least painful way to learn about the differences among the free market movement, even less painful than this panel. So thank <laughs> you, Phil. It's only about $9. <laughs>